I'm going to continue our reading in Ephesians, starting at verse 15. We'll read to verse 19. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Father, I pray that you would bless the Word of God to our souls this morning. Lord, just as bread and food is nourishing to our bodies, every word that proceeds from your mouth is nourishing to our spirits, our souls, our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would just take this short passage out of your holy word and you would nourish us this morning. God, we look to you to do it. We open up our hands, Lord, for you to feed us. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. Morning by morning, we do see new mercies. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for the fact, Lord, that much does not depend on us. It depends on you. And that you will perfect the thing that you began. And we pray that you be glorified today in the things that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we come now in Ephesians chapter 1 to a new section. The first section that we read together was from verse 3 to 14, which was Paul's praise to God, his worship to God for the amazing things that God had has done for us, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and he unfolds that from verse 3 to 14. It's one long sentence, and it's one long hymn of praise. Paul is thanking God and praising God for everything that we have. But in verse 15, we come to a new section. Our tour takes a pause, actually, for a moment. It doesn't mean that we're going to be leaving our tour. We're going to be coming out of heaven. But... We take a pause, because here Paul says a prayer. So it's almost like he's showing us heaven, and he stops, and he prays. And he prays for the Ephesians, and he prays for us ultimately as well. Before I go into the new section, I just want to ask, has it struck you the things that we've seen up in heaven so far? It's completely different than what we see on the earth, isn't it? The things that we see on the earth... We see it ourselves, we see sin, we see failure, we see weakness, we struggle. But in heaven, it's the exact opposite. It's just complete victory all the time. Um, You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have the full forgiveness of sins. You have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. And then you see Paul not only praising God for all this, but saying that the end of all of this is the praise of God. 
everything that God is doing and everything that God has done for you and for me, He's done it to receive glory and to receive praise. Does that strike you? That doesn't flatter us, does it? That's not very flattering. Is that good news or bad news for you? Does that sound like good news or bad news? Because for a lot of people, that's not good news. I wonder what heaven is like. You know, I wonder what the afterlife is like. I wonder what the purpose of life is all about. Some people ask these questions. Everybody asks these questions ultimately. And the Bible says the purpose of life is the glory and praise of God. What will heaven be like? The glory and the praise of God. What should you be doing right now? Praising God. And some, to some people, that's not very attractive and desirable because it's not very flattering to yourself. Even though all these amazing things God has done for you, uh, the end of it all is His praise and His glory. And it's not very flattering. It's not very flattering. There is a great tension between the praise of God and flattery and pride. You see, Satan was in the same situation. He didn't want to praise God. He didn't want the end of all things to be the praise and the glory of God. He wanted the end of all things to be himself. And this issue of praise is so vital because do you remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan and he said, I'll give you everything that you want if you just bow down and worship me. That was so vital. That was a vital moment in history. Do you realize that this is the perfect man? This is the ideal man. And if he had worshipped Satan, everything would have been lost. Uh, Everything would have been turned upside down. There would have been no repair. That moment was so crucial. Jesus said, You worship the Lord your God, and Him only will you serve. Jesus knew that the tension was all about who will receive worship ultimately in the end. Will it be God, or will it be us, or will it be Satan, or will it be something else other than Him? And for you, is this good news as we've, as we've been going in heaven? Is this good news for you? Does it joy, put joy in your heart when you think that God will be praised ultimately in the end? Before I go on again, I just want to say this too, that worship, and I've said this before, worship is always a response. And it won't be desirable to you to worship God if worship is a command. And I know you might think, wait, doesn't the Bible command us to worship God? Of course it does. And that command is a good thing. Absolutely. It's a good thing to worship God. And we're commanded to worship God in Scripture. It's true. But as long as all you see it as is a command to worship God, it won't be a desirable thing to you. The Bible says that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that commandments provoke in us rebellion. So when there's a command for Wallace to worship God or there's a command for JP to worship God or there's a command for Kim to worship God, we're going to rebel against that. And that's what we have done, isn't it? This isn't just theory. This is experience in each of our lives. We have rebelled against the command to love God with all our hearts to worship Him, haven't we? We've rebelled against that. It wasn't desirable to us. Not that the command is wrong. It's absolutely right. But we're wrong. We're sinners. And that's what the command will do. But true worship, as we find it revealed in heaven here, is response and not command. This is something freely given. It's not anymore something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do because of what God has done for me. This is what Paul is teaching us here by his own example. He's worshiping God. He's blessing God the Father. But not because he has to, 
but in response to everything that God has done for him. So the Christian life isn't just like before we were Christians. Before we were Christians, we were commanded to worship God, and we failed that miserably. Then we realized that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and blessed us with every spiritual blessing, chose us before the foundation of the world, sealed us, redeemed us, all these things. And what do we do? We don't have to. We want to praise Him. So let me say this. Does praise to God as an end seem like a glorious thing to you? And if it doesn't, it's because you're seeing worship merely as just a command. You don't have to be a Christian and you're commanded to worship. But when you see God as a Christian through the eyes of heaven and all of the grace of God, right, the praise and the glory of His grace, then it becomes a desirable thing. You want to praise Him because of how good God is and what He's done for you. And that's why Paul in verse 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, he turns to a prayer. I mean, why does he turn to a prayer? Because he's aware he needs to pray at this point. It says in verse 15, Wherefore I also... So he also what? Blessed be God the Father. I'm praising God. I'm thanking God. I'm glorifying God. And now, having known that you've been saved, I praise God for that. He says in verse 15 and 16, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the love you have unto the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you and to make mention of you in my prayers. So he also thanks God and praises God and also has a request to God. He prays. So he praises, he also prays. He prays for them. Now, in verse 15, when it says, I also heard of your faith and your love, this isn't that Paul wasn't intimately equated with the Ephesians, but the letter was written some five years after he'd left Ephesus to go to Jerusalem. So during that time, he would have heard reports of the Ephesians and heard of their faith and of their love. And so he gives thanks to God. But more than that, he prays for them. He prays for the Ephesians. What's interesting here is that we learn a couple things. And by the way, I believe that what I have to share today is very important. And important for us all right now. Because I think we fail pretty bad at this. But I think this is extremely important for us as a community in Cache Valley to get and to grow in together. I think we've done poorly at this. Consider here that he's praying for them. And consider that he's praying for them even after hearing of their faith and their love. Does that seem strange to you at all? That he hears a report of their faith and of their love. And he, I mean, he spent years with these people, a couple years with these people. Does it seem strange to you that he's praying for them? Now, when you pray for Christians, when do you typically pray for your fellow brothers and sisters? Usually trouble, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> Do we pray for each other when we hear good reports? We might thank God, and Paul certainly does, but he goes on to pray for them as well. Typically, we pray for people only when we hear of struggles, when we hear that there's some crisis in their life, right? We need to pray for so-and-so because they're going to the hospital going to get some, you know, finger surgery or something. <laughs> or so-and-so lost a loved one. We should pray for them. So-and-so needs uh, a job. Yeah. Thank you. And there's nothing wrong with that because we need prayer at those times. That's super important. So I'm not in any way saying that's wrong. 
But there's something more that we need to learn and grow in and do. And that is we need to pray for one another when things are going well and maybe even when we hear a good report. So I get a report that, oh, Wallace just blessed me yesterday. Maybe Alan tells me, Wallace just blessed me the other day. And I was just so encouraged to be around him. He's just flowing with grace. Do I just say, praise God? Or do I start praying for Wallace at that point? And often Paul would say, at every remembrance of you, I pray for you. Now, we aren't in the habit of praying for one another upon every remembrance, right? And you might think, my goodness, I'll be praying all the time. (laughs) Well, that's not quite true, I don't think. I know that I don't think of everyone all the time, you know? But when I do, I could pray. And it doesn't mean you have to pray an hour. But I was practicing this this week as I was studying this. I was practicing. Just whenever I'd remember there'd be a mention of someone, I'd just thank God for them and then pray a blessing for them. Pray that they would have grace and peace. Or this. that I actually prayed this prayer of Paul that we'll look at in a moment. How would that change, do you think, the community here of believers? I wonder. You know, in heaven, Paul doesn't go into it here, but we see in John, in heaven, the prayers of the saints are heard by God. Uh, Who was I reading just the other day? Uh, I think it was Chapman, actually. He said in his book, Choice Sayings, that when we talk with another person, we appreciate when they look at us and give us their attention. That's what we appreciate, right? Like, when we talk to someone... We don't want to talk to the back of their head. We want to talk to them face to face and see that they're listening. And Chapman said, God is like that with his people. When we begin to talk to God, we're not talking to the wall. He's looking and listening. Do you ever think that when you pray to God, he's too busy to listen to you? I don't know how God listens to everybody's prayers, but I know that he does. Do we see God like that as wanting to hear us, as turning his face when you say, Father, and then he's like, Whoo. no, he listens to you. Like, how would you do it if your kid were to talk to you? The psalmist repeatedly says, I thank God that he hears my prayers. Do we believe it? If we did, pray for one another like that, even just a little bit. Father, just bless Alan today and give him the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Not because he's in a crisis or anything, just I remembered him. And you think God would listen? And how would that change things? In heaven, it says that the prayers of the saints are like incense before God. Now, I don't know if you know anything about incense, but it smells strong. I remember attending an Anglican church in Canada, and uh, they sometimes do incense. And it fills the place with a really strong smell. It's hard not to notice it. It's hard not to notice it. The Bible in the Old Testament talks about God and his smell. He smells sin. I mean, the stench of their sin comes before him and he gets mad. Or he smells the sweet aroma of a sacrifice and his wrath is turned away. Actually, he smells it and he's satisfied. That smell reminds him of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his wrath is turned away. The smell of God is in the Old Testament. But also the incense, the prayers of the saints. He smells our prayers too and it's strong and it's a beautiful smell. It's likened to incense. So what is our vision of prayer, uh, typically? What is your vision of prayer? Is it this? Is it like Paul, you read in his letters, 
you wonder about this guy because he's always praying all the time. And he says here in 16, I cease not to give thanks. I mean, he's praying. He's a praying man, ceasing not to give thanks and to pray with supplication for all the saints. This doesn't mean you're going to be praying in a room all day because Paul was out all the time, busy. And yet he still had this as a prominent part of his life that we see. If we want to learn of him, we see a praying man. We learn that not only is it not only struggling Christians we need to pray for, we also learn here that even established Christians need to see more and to praise God more. They have faith, they have love, and they are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. But he prays for them that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. These are established Christians. These are people Paul spent years with. And he wasn't bemoaning the fact that they were unbelieving. But even an established Christian needs more vision of Jesus Christ. Do you feel that you see all that you could see? That you don't really need anyone to pray for you to see better because you see fine? Do you feel that you praise God as you ought, perfectly? Do you feel like your praise is perfected? It just couldn't be better. I could not praise God and thank Him more. Is that true? No, <laughs> it's not true. It's certainly not true. So we need this prayer. And it's not saying you're a horrible Christian because there is no such thing. A Christian is one who's received every blessing. And you may even be established that. You may even be, you know Jesus is your Savior. But you need to see more. And you need to love more. See, Paul went to the third heaven at one point in his life. He saw things, he says, that are not even lawful to be uttered. And now he's just filling us in. And he tells us in these places that there is the unsearchable riches of Christ up there. Unsearchable. So don't think that you've arrived. Don't think that you see it. It's unsearchable, as we talked about once. You don't know the boundaries of it. So we can always see more, and we can always praise God more. And that is what I believe it's going to be like in eternity. It's not going to be like on the very first day we get there, we're amazed. Wow, that's amazing. Incredible. Oh, and then, you know, for a week, it's incredible. And then after about a week, it's like, well, that's really great. But, man, what else is there? (laughs) It's not going to be like that. I believe that God, because it says it's unsearchable, God will just be revealing more and more and more and more and more of the riches of his grace, showing us new aspects and angles and dimensions of his grace so that our praise to God for all of eternity will intensify and intensify and intensify. So that a billion years later, you'll look back at your first day in heaven and and think, wow, like what a different time that was. What a different time that was. I mean, we think about our in our lives, just like, wow, I was, such a, I was so different back then. I think in heaven it'll be like that. It'll be like, wow, I'm just learning so many more things. and I'm a different person even now than I was before in my praise. It's just intensifying and intensifying in the praise to God. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Whom having not seen, you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Having not even seen him yet, 
I mean, he's like, you haven't even seen him yet. You're just believing and you're rejoicing. But when I read that in First Peter verse 8, I am aware of the inadequacy of my praise. I'm very aware of the inadequacy of my praise. And maybe those guys, they saw better than I am. They were rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And they hadn't even seen him yet. Imagine when we finally do see him. There's a challenge there to see him more. Because you don't have to wait before you see him face to face. Can you imagine when you finally stand before your Lord and Savior, your God, the incarnate man, Jesus Christ, and you look into his eyes and he looks into your eyes on that day and you know you could have praised him more on the earth. You could praise him more, just you and him alone, but also you could have shown forth his praises to the man and even to the angels who are watching. The angels who are watching all these things look upon us and they see us and they see our praise. Can you imagine when you stand before Jesus and finally then you're just praising, but just the awareness that, wow, why didn't I praise him before? Why didn't I praise him? Because there's no difference between now and then except I'm just seeing more clearly. But the same truth was true right now. I mean, I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was redeemed. I knew I had no hope before he came into my life and now I have all hope. Wow. Maybe that's why he'll have to wipe away our tears. Another thing we learn from this prayer of Paul is that the Christian's life is not an individualistic life at all, but it's a community life. Actually, verse 15, when he talks about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love unto all the saints, actually, it's interesting that the way he says it in the original language is not your faith, you, Alan, you, Casey, you, but the faith that is among you. That's the way he puts it. So it's this corporate faith. And then this love that they have for one another that's among them because of their faith. And then Paul is praying for them. The Christian life is not individualistic. I, I've shared this story before with some of you, but when I was in England, I went to um, this one place. In, I think it was called Slough, actually. And I, I wonder if John Bunyan got that word Slough for the Slough of Despond in Bowman's Progress. But it was uh, almost... Pre- totally predominant uh, Sikh and Hindu uh, place. So as we're driving down the road, because my friend Greg was going to preach at one of the churches there, which is a, a Christian church, but full of Indian people, British Indian people, English-speaking Brits, you know, but they're um, dark-skinned, they're Indian. And, uh, and so we're driving down the road, and there's all these people in turbans and robes, like everywhere, and there's these huge temples everywhere, and, but yet we're in England. It was really bizarre. Anyway, we went to a guy's house and we're just fellowshipping with these dear believers. And we talked to one man who was describing how he became a Christian. He was a Hindu. And he said that, you know, one of the things that struck me about Christianity, about being a Christian, is that um, when I go to church and when I worship God on Sunday or throughout my week, but when I gather and go to the church, it's completely like a corporate thing. It's all about fellowship with one another. Or not even just at church, but just my whole life. It's fellowship with one another. When I was a Hindu, it was completely individualistic. It was just me. And when I went to the temple, nobody talked to anybody. Nobody talked to anybody. You just went in, you did your own prayers, and you just left. And nobody said a word to one another. It was, there was no sense of community or fellowship at all. It was just you and your progression. You and your, your life and your process. He said, that just struck me. Like, becoming a Christian, it's like family. And that's exactly what it is. 
It's family. It's not just get saved and see you later. You you believe on Christ, you receive the forgiveness of sins, and now we're stuck together. I mean, whether you like it or not, we're family. You know? you, you, you're stuck with family, right? You don't choose, really. You can't choose who you get, who you're going to be a family member with, and you're stuck with them your whole life. You'll see them at every family reunion there is until you die. And the thing about family is, God has designed it. I believe He puts these people together, and they have to work it out. Of course, the failure to work it out is one of the greatest failures of all. It's not God's design, but God wants you to work it out. Look at Paul as an example. Look at this guy. Look at his life. He was not content to live individualistically. He was not content. He didn't just say, I'm saved and I'm content with that. Thank you, Lord, for I mean, showing me how stupid I was and, and that I couldn't be saved by the law and apprehending me on the road to Damascus. I think I'll just, you know, retire to the island of Cyprus. Paul was not content with the fact that he was a Christian. He wanted other people to be Christians too. And he spent his whole life out there persuading, preaching, and gathering in people. And then, he wasn't just content that they became Christians. He wasn't just, oh great, you became a Christian, that's fine. He's like, no, now we're family, you're stuck with me, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to disciple you, and I'm going to be with you, mentor you, spend time with you. Paul was not content to be just an individual. Because for him, Christianity wasn't just about being an individual, just saved, and then you go to heaven. It's just about you and God. Now, the church is made up of individuals. There's an individual aspect to your Christian faith with God and your relationship with God. But it's not merely that. Remember how we read in chapter 1 how God is gathering all things in heaven and earth into one? God's creating a family and a people. And that people love one another. And that people pray for one another. That people care about one another, look out for one another. It's, it's not an individual thing. It's totally a community. This is, I think, where we have failed. Whether it just be because we're North Americans and we think so individualistically. You drive in your car and you... I'm not saying this is wrong, but it just... You, you, you drive in your car, you don't talk to anybody. And then when you go home... You open your garage and you drive in and close the garage and no one sees you after that, you know. It's like you're alone in your house from the outside world, you're in your car from the outside world. It's just completely an individualistic thing. And we're affected by that in our spiritual life. But we have to face this. If we're going to live the life that God wants us to live, or are we going to live just the status quo Christian life that we've experienced and that even in North America is just common. So we see here Paul praying for them, caring about them, and by his life, the way he spent time with them. It was not enough for Paul just to be saved. He wanted others to be saved. It was not enough for Paul just to know that his brother was saved. He wanted to grow in relationship with the brethren as well. Make sense? Think we've, uh, how have we done, do you think? Yeah. I'm guilty. And uh, I want myself and us all to walk in the reality that Paul walked in.
that God wants us to walk in. Let's now look at Paul's actual prayer for the Ephesians in verse 17, 18, and 19. His prayer consists of four things. There's a request to God on behalf of the Ephesians and three desired results of that request. So he asks God for something and he wants to see three things come to pass from that. Three things. This isn't exhaustive, but this was just his prayer at this point for them. He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's the request. His request, his prayer, was that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that their eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. The last part of verse 17 and the first part of verse 18 are related. So ultimately, when God gives you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the eyes of your understanding are enlightened. Or if you want your eyes to be enlightened, then you need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. They're related. And uh, I don't know what your Bible says there, but the King James says the eyes of your understanding. But actually, it's the eyes of your heart, which is actually what Paul says. So hopefully your Bible says the eyes of your heart. That's set in contrast to the eyes of your head. So you've got the eyes in your head and you've got eyes in your heart, the Bible says. Eyes in your heart. Now, that expression, eyes of your heart, is common to Jewish literature, not just in the Bible. Yet it's also common in the Bible. It's common throughout the Bible. You remember how the Bible speaks about not just the eyes of your head, but there's this deeper eyes in your heart. Like in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says, I'll go preach, and he says, the ears of this people are dull, their eyes they don't see, they'll see but they won't understand. They'll hear, but they won't perceive. Right? So there's this theme throughout Scripture. In Acts 26, when God sends Paul forth to preach the gospel, it says that you would open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. So we see this theme throughout Scripture, that there's the eyes in your head and then there's the eyes in your heart. Paul's praying for the eyes in their heart. You might have someone who has great eyes in their head, but they're blind in their heart. They do not see and understand the things of God at all. In contrast, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, if you turn there real quick, to verse 18, when Paul contrasts uh, the Ephesians with the, with the Gentiles, with the non-believing Gentiles, he says that they have the understanding darkened. They're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So they have eyes, but they're blind in their heart. They're not blind physically. There's nothing wrong with them in their, in their head, but in their heart. And it's interesting in verse 18 that he says, the blindness of their heart prevents them from experiencing and knowing and being filled with the knowledge of God. It causes them to be alienated, doesn't it? And so in 17 and 18 in his prayer, Paul is praying for Christians that their eyes and their heart might not be open but enlightened or more enlightened because to be a Christian you have had to have your eyes enlightened at some degree 
But what we learn here is that it doesn't stop there. You don't see as well as you ought because the more you see, the more your eyes are enlightened, the more light that your soul sees, the more you'll be filled with the fullness of God. He prays again in chapter 3 about this. The thing that opens the eyes of the heart, it's the Holy Spirit that Paul prays that God would give them. There's some question, is this, in verse 17, the Spirit, just a spirit of wisdom, like give you a disposition of wisdom, or is it the Spirit? It's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom has to do with interpretation. Wisdom has to do with what you do with information. So you might be given a lot of information and have no wisdom. You don't know what to do with it. I might be given a math textbook. A lot of information there. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> okay? I have no idea what to do with it. Revelation would be the giving of the textbook. Revelation would be the information. Paul prays that God would give us that knowledge. And essentially, through the letter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is giving them that knowledge. He's saying, do you know what you guys really have? Forgiveness. Every blessing. But it takes wisdom to understand that, to discern that, to grasp that. And so Paul prays for those two things. God, give them wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of, of you. That word knowledge there, I discovered recently, is actually not the typical word for knowledge at all. But it's this word in the Greek, epinosis. And it's acknowledge, as a matter of fact. Acknowledge. Acknowledge or recognize. So God wants you, and Paul wants God to, give you the Spirit so that you can acknowledge what? What does acknowledging mean? It means you recognize something that's already true. You acknowledge it. You're not making it true. You're acknowledging it to be true. Paul is saying, there's so many things, even as Christians, you need to acknowledge. There's some things you know. There's so many things that you don't realize yet. I want you to acknowledge these things so that you can rejoice. So a Christian always needs to receive more of the Spirit to acknowledge. Here's a challenge for us. When we are reminded of one another throughout this week, and hopefully not just this week, but from here on in, but it starts with these little practicing steps, pray that God would give the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the acknowledging of Christ for whoever you remember. That is probably the best prayer you can pray for somebody, isn't it? I can't think of a better prayer because it all starts there with just faith. We walk by faith and seeing what God, His truth and what He's done for us. Here's a challenge. Paul says, on every remembrance I do this, may it be in our lives too. And we'll see things change in the valley. Now, there's three results. There's three things that Paul wants them to see specifically And here are the three. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Number one. Number two, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And number three, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, if I could see that clearly every day, that would change my life. That would change the way I live. That would reorient me completely. These three things Paul wants us to see. And 
These three things, by the way, he's already spoken about them before in the long hymn of praise. He's going to continue to speak about them, these three things, in the next section, all the way through chapter 2. He wants us to see these things. So we're just going to briefly look at them this morning. And then I thought what we do after after we just briefly look at these three things is maybe we can just spend a moment and pray for each other this prayer. Maybe just we can just turn to someone and just pray this prayer over them. And then we'll sing our closing song. Very briefly, the hope of his calling. God, give Kim the wisdom the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the acknowledging of you that she might know what is the hope of your calling. Or in other words, God's calling brings hope and I want you to know that hope. God's calling, what he's doing in calling you into Christ, in pulling you out of the world, in planting you into his family. It is giving you a hope. Remember we looked at before in chapter 2 verse 12, The Gentiles have no hope. They have no hope. They're without Christ and without hope in this world. And Paul's saying, with Christ you have hope. You have so much hope. And I want you to know that hope. I want you to realize that hope that you have. Paul is, it seems like he's so taken up with hope in all his epistles. You'll notice. He's taken up with a lot of things. But hope seems to be like the crowning jewel for Paul. Right, Kurt? And it's not just this wishfulness. It's this beautiful certainty. In Romans 8, it's like, this is the same flavor. He says, what do we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's so much hope there. If God is for me, which is what Paul's sharing here, he's blessed you with everything. He's called you. He's saved you. He's sealed you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Do you realize what hope you have? Do you realize that you have a hope in a future, like the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11? It says, I've got plans for you, plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. That's one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. Isn't that what we need to live life? You can't live life without hope. And God says, I want to give you a hope in a future. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a hope and you have a future. Do you know that? You can take your eyes off your miserable existence, okay, on the earth right now, and set your mind on things above. You may have nothing. You might not even have a job. And if you're a believer, you're heir to the king of kings. You are son and daughter of God. You might have nothing. You might not be able to move, Kim. And what a hope and a future you have. Why, why are people just completely uh, ad- they're addicted now and they're dependent upon antidepressant drugs and they're going to all these different things besides Christ to try to find hope, to try to find peace. They follow every wind of, of, uh, of doctrine. People present these things. Oh, this will help you. This will make you happy. This will give you hope. This will give you a future. There is no hope, the Bible says, without Christ. It's all an illusion. But if you have Christ, then you have all hope. So Paul prays, God, give them the wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that they may know the hope of your calling. They may know what it is, that hope. Isn't that an awesome thing? And secondly, that you may know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now there's some debate about this too. Is this talking about our inheritance that we have? Or is it talking about God's inheritance that he has in us? 
Because, by the way, the Bible talks about both. In the Old Testament, it says that God's people are his inheritance. Let that swim around in your mind for a while. God has an inheritance. It means he's getting something amazing out of us. It doesn't matter which way you look at it, because both are true, whichever angle you look at it. If it's talking about God's inheritance in us, he gets something amazing in us because we get something amazing in him. And if it's talking about our inheritance in him, it doesn't exclude his inheritance in us. It's the exact same. The point Paul is getting at is that the inheritance is gloriously rich. And if he's talking about God's in us, it still is gloriously rich for us. If he's talking about our glorious rich inheritance, it's rich for him, whichever way you look at it. God wants us to see what a gloriously rich inheritance we have. You'll notice that it's very similar to the hope. All three of these are very similar. Do you know what Paul's trying to do or wanting to do? He wants to encourage the Christians. That is his purpose here. He wants us to be encouraged. What is the hope? What is the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints? I mean, the riches that you have as a believer that's waiting for you. I mean, you'll be indestructible if you see that. Sure, you can have my cloak as well. It's not that important to me. The glorious inheritance. And one who inherits has a wonderful position as well. It's not a servant who inherits, it's a son. We'll look more at this later in Ephesians. And lastly, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? Better translation, what is the surpassing greatness of his power? I want you to know, by the Spirit revealing it to you, what the power of God is towards you, and that it surpasses all things. There may be lots of powers coming against you, but God's power surpasses it all, and it works towards us. As a matter of fact, it's the only thing that's really working. Remember, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, what would happen if we got a vision of that and stopped thinking that everything depends upon me? Oh, man, all these things I have to do or I'm not going to make it. He's like, no, I want you to see from heaven's perspective that God, he has surpassing power working toward you. All of these things are connected, aren't they? He wants you to be encouraged. He wants you to see. And of course, we could study the whole Bible and opening up that whole theme of God's working power toward us. You see it all over the place. And because he's the one who works, he's the one who causes, he's the one who initiates, he's the one who finishes, he cannot fail. Be encouraged. So we should pray for one another that we can see these things. He wants us to be encouraged we can pray for one another and encourage each other as a, as a body. If you got a piece of wood, a two-by-four that's just standing up just by itself, how easy is that thing for it to fall over? Pretty easy, right? But when you connect them all together, when you get a bunch of two-by-fours connected together, then you've got something that stands. And as a body, if we can stand together, not just individualistic alone, but one another holding up one another, praying for one another, then we'll stand strong together. Do you feel like you need encouragement? Do you feel like you need to see these things better? Are you content where you're at? I know this morning, I need prayer. I need your prayers. I need your prayers daily, but I know I do. I don't know about you. I want to see these things more clearly. I want to set my mind on things above. I want to see what the hope is, what the inheritance is, what the power of God is. 
And I covet your prayers as well for that. So maybe we could pray for one another even just now. Just pick somebody. Maybe your wife or your husband or your friend. I'll pray with you, Jacob. But let's just take a moment to pray for each other and just pray Paul's prayer and let us practice doing this. Amen.